Twice bought by R. M. Ballantyne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Thornton, Miranda, New Zealand. Twice bought, Chapter Four. When Tom Brixton had descended the river some eight or ten miles, he deemed himself pretty safe from his pursuers, at least for the time being, as his rate of progress with the current far exceeded the pace at which men could travel on foot, and besides, there was the strong possibility that, on reaching the spot where the canoe had been entered, and the bag of gold left on the bank, the pursuers would be partially satisfied as well as baffled, and would return home. On reaching a waterfall, therefore, where the navigable part of the river ended, and its broken course through Bevan's gully began, he landed without any show of haste, drew the canoe up on the bank, where he left it concealed amongst bushes, and began quietly to descend by a narrow footpath with which he had been long familiar. Up to that point the unhappy youth had entertained no definite idea as to why he was hurrying towards the hut of Paul Bevan, or what he meant to say for himself on reaching it. But towards noon, as he drew near to it, the thought of Betty and her innocence and purity oppressed him. She rose before his mind's eye like a reproving angel. How could he ever face her with the dark stain of a mean theft upon his soul? How could he find courage to confess his guilt to her? Or, supposing that he did not confess it, how could he forge the tissue of lies that would be necessary to account for his sudden appearance, and in such guise, blood-stained, haggard, wounded, and worn out with fatigue and hunger? Such thoughts now drove him to the verge of despair. Even if Betty were to refrain from putting awkward questions, there was no chance whatever of Paul Bevan being so considerate. Was he then to attempt to deceive them, or was he to reveal all? He shrank from answering the question, for he believed that Bevan was an honest man, and feared that he would have nothing further to do with him when he learned that he had become a common thief. A thief! How the idea burned into his heart, now that the influence of strong drink no longer warped his judgment. "'Has it really come to this?' he muttered gloomily. Then, as he came suddenly in sight of Bevan's hut, he exclaimed more cheerfully, "'Come, I'll make a clean breast of it!' Poor Bevan had pitched his hut on top of a steep rocky mound, the front of which almost overhung a precipice that descended into a deep gully, where the tormented river fell into a black, gurgling pool. Behind the hut flowed a streamlet, which, being divided by the mound into a fork, ran on either side of it in two deep channels, so that the hut could only be reached by a plank bridge thrown across the lower or western fork. The forked streamlet tumbled over the precipice, and descended into the dark pool below in the form of two tiny silver threads. At least it would have done so, if its two threads had not been dissipated in misty spray long before reaching the bottom of the cliff. Thus it will be seen that the gold-digger occupied an almost impregnable fortress, though why he had perched himself in such a position no one could guess, and he declined to tell. It was therefore set down, like all his other doings, to eccentricity. Of course, there was so far a pretext for his caution in the fact that there were scoundrels in those regions, who sometimes banded together and tacked people who were supposed to have gold-dust about them in large quantities, but as such assaults were not common, and as every one was equally liable to them, there seemed no sufficient ground for Bevan's excessive care in the selection of his fortress. On reaching it, Tom found its owner cutting up some firewood near his plank bridge. 
"'Hello, Brixton!' he cried, looking up in some surprise as the young man advanced. "'You seem to be in the wars. What have you been fighting with, lad?' "'With a bear, Paul Bevan,' replied Tom, sitting down on a log with a long-drawn sigh. "'You're used up, lad, and want rest. Mayhap you want grub also. Anyhow, you look a bit awful bad. No wounds, I hope, or broken bones, eh?' No, nothing but a broken heart, replied Tom, with a faint attempt to smile. Why, that's a queer bit of you for a bar to break. If you'd said it was a girl that broke it now, I could have— Where is Betty? interrupted the youth quickly, with an anxious expression. In that, looking at the grub. You'll come in and have some, of course, but I'm curious to find out about that bar. Was it far from here you met him? Aye, just a short way this side of Pine Tree Diggings. Pine Tree Diggins, repeated Paul in surprise. Why then? Why didn't you go back to Pine Tree Diggins to wash yourself and rest, instead of coming all the way here? Because, because, Paul Bevan, said Tom with sudden earnestness as he gazed on the other's face, because I'm a thief. You might be worse, replied Bevan, while a peculiarly significant smile played for a moment on his rugged features. What do you mean? exclaimed Tom in amazement. Why? "'You might have been a murderer, you know,' replied Bevan, with a nod. The youth was so utterly disgusted with this cool and different way of regarding the matter that he almost regretted having spoken. He had been condemning himself so severely during the latter part of his journey, and the meanness of his conduct as well as its wickedness had been growing so dark in colour that Bevan's unexpected levity took him aback, and for a few seconds he could not speak. "'Listen,' he said at last, seizing his friend by the arm, and looking earnestly into his eyes. Listen, and I'll tell you about it. The man became grave as Tom went on with his narrative. Yes, there's a bad business, he said at its conclusion, an uncommon bad business. Got a very ugly look about it. You're right, Paul, said Tom, bowing his head, while a flush of shame covered his face. No one, I think, can be more fully convinced of the meanness, the sin of my conduct, than I am now. Oh! "'As to that,' returned Bevan, with another of his peculiar smiles, "'I didn't exactly mean that. "'You were tempted, you know, pretty bad. "'Besides, Bully Gashford is a big rascal "'and richly deserves what he got. "'No, it wasn't that I meant. "'But it's a bad lookout for you, lad, if they nab you. "'I knows the temper of them pine-tree men, "'and they're in such a wax just now "'that they'll string you up as sure as fate if they catch you.' Again Tom was silent, for the lightness with which Bevan regarded his act of theft only had the effect of making him condemn himself the more. "'But I say, Brixton,' resumed Bevan, with an altered expression, "'not a word of all this to Betty. You haven't much chance with her as it is, although I do my best to back you up. But if she came to know of this affair, you'd not have the ghost of a chance at all. For you know the girl is religious, more's a pity, though I will say it, She's got a good, obedient heart, in spite of her religion, and she's an affectionate daughter to me. But she'd never marry a thief, you know. You couldn't well expect her to. The dislike with which Tom Brixton regarded his companion deepened into loathing as he spoke, and he felt it difficult to curb his desire to fell the man to the ground, but the thought that he was Betty's father soon swallowed up all other thoughts and feelings. He resolved in his own mind that, come of it what might, he would certainly tell all the facts to the girl, and then formally give her up, for he agreed with Bethman at least on one point, namely that he could not expect a good religious girl to marry a thief. 
"'But you forget, Paul,' he said after a few moments' thought, "'that Betty is sure to hear about this affair the first time you have a visitor from Pine Tree Diggings.' "'That's true, lad. I did forget that. "'But you know you can stoutly deny that it was you who did it. "'Say there was some mistake, and get up some cock-and-bull story to confuse her. "'Anyhow, say nothing about it just now.' Tom was still meditating what he should say in reply to this, when Betty herself appeared, calling her father to dinner. Now, not a mind, not a word about the robbery, he whispered as he rose, and we'll make as much as we can of the bar. Yeah, not a word about it, thought Tom, till Betty and I are alone, and then a clean breast and good-bye to her forever. During dinner the girl manifested more than usual sympathy with Tom Brixton. She saw that he was almost worn out with fatigue, and listened with intense interest to her father's embellished narrative of the encounter with the bar, which narrative Tom was forced to interrupt and correct several times in the course of its delivery. But this sympathy did not throw her off her guard. Remembering past visits, she took special care that Tom should have no opportunity of being alone with her. "'Now, you must be off to rest,' said Paul Bevan, the moment his visitor laid down his knife and fork. "'For, let me tell you, I may want your help before night. I've got an enemy, Tom, an enemy who has sworn to be the death of me, and who will be the death of me, I feel sure of that in the long run. However, I'll keep him off as long as I can. He'd have been under the sod long before now, lad, if, if it hadn't been for my Betty. She's a queer girl, is Betty, and she's made a queer man of her old father. But who is this enemy, and when? What? Explain yourself. Well, I've no time to explain either when or what just now, and you have no time to waste. Only I have a hint from a friend early this morning, that my enemy has discovered my whereabouts and is following me up. But I'm ready for him, and right glad to have your stout arm to help. Though you couldn't find a babby just now. Lie down, I say, and I'll call you when you're wanted. Ceasing to press the matter, Tom entered a small room, in one corner of which was a narrow bed or bunk, fixed against the wall. Flinging himself on this, he was fast asleep in less than two minutes. Kind nature's sweet restorer held him so fast that for three hours he lay precisely as he fell, without the slightest motion save the slow and regular heaving of his broad chest. At the end of that time he was rudely shaken by a strong hand. The guilty are always easily startled. Springing from his couch, he had seized Bevan by the throat before he was quite awake. "'Ernest man! Not quite so fast!' gasped his host, shaking him off. "'Come! They've turned up sooner than 